Thank you for coming to the podcast. Top Turtle MMA Podcast on FlowCombat.com is brought to you by the best MMA and BJJ clothing brand out there right now. I'm talking about ADK Fightwear. Look, a lot of companies try to charge you an arm and a leg for a rash guard and some spats, but not ADK. Used to spending 60 bucks on a rash guard? Check out their arm bars and stripes rash guard for just 20 bucks. Used to dropping 50 bucks on a pair of spats? Well, you can get two pairs of their fade to green spats for just that price. And you're not going to sacrifice style and quality, ladies and gentlemen. These things are high quality and hold up against the test of time. So go to ADKFightwear.com right now and use our exclusive promo code TURTLE. That's T-U-R-T-L-E for 20% off. ADK Fightwear brings you this episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast, and it starts right now. with FloatCombat.com, Top Turtle MMA Podcast, and I have the pleasure of speaking to the world's most dangerous man, UFC Hall of Famer, ex-WWE wrestler, Ken Shamrock. Ken, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This is an interview we've wanted to do for a while. Uh, You know, I want to start with, we last saw you in the cage, February of 2016, against your rival, Hoist Gracie. And I feel like this always has to be asked of you. Are you training? Is there a fight on the horizon? What's the deal? Well, I'm always training. I like to keep in shape, uh, stay fit. I feel good when I'm in shape, and I want to live my life like that. But as far as the fight, the only fight um, that I tried to get and that I wanted to get uh, was the Hoist Gracie fight. Uh, the way it ended was uh, was was it for the fans or to myself? Um, but um, that fight's not going to happen because Hoist Gracie won't take that fight and won't do it again. Got you. So, would you step in with anyone else if the right, let's say, big name came along, or is it kind of Hoist or bust at this point? Yeah, I mean, I'm not looking to create or rebuild what I've already built. Um, I think that the finishing touches on my career, I've done everything. I've reached the elite level. Um, I've done so much for the sport to build it where it's at today. And I really just wanted to finish that uh, that rivalry between me and Hoyce uh, because so many times that we fought, there was always something uh, that was an obstacle that was put in the way, uh, whether it was changing the rules or whether it was you know, adding what they wanted involved in fight or taking things out. Um, you know, I thought last fight like it would be fair, like there was they didn't have any control over how things were going to be set up, and and then he hits me in the groin, and uh, and uh, you know the referee misses the groin shot. So uh, I would like to be able to do that one again, and and be able to do it right, finish it right for the fans and for the history of MMA. Not that you can get into Hoist's head, but why do you think he won't do a, another fight? Well, it's obvious. The reason why he needed me in the grind was because he knew he wasn't going to be able to handle me. He knew right from the start that I was going to make him stand up and that it wasn't going to go to the ground and that I was eating him up standing up and he couldn't he couldn't stop from doing that. Um, and I, that's the reason why he hit me in the grind. You're a professional like, like me and him are. You don't stray with shots like that that are that easy. Um, that, was a, uh, that was, in my opinion, a very deliberate shot in order for him to get away out 
unfortunately, the referee didn't see it, so he ended up getting the win instead of a disqualification. I mean, I feel like your guys' rivalry, it's, yeah. I, I mean, it's what started the UFC, right? You and him and UFC won. I guess it's one of those things that'll just never die. Uh, you know, we have uh, Art Davey on the show uh, a lot. I, I sort of come to think of him as the uncle I never had, Uncle Art. And he always talks so uh, glowingly about you and the early days and how excited he was when he booked you for that first UFC. He kind of thought of you as his, you know, almost like his Ken doll. You were the, the guy he was going to build around. You look good on a poster. What do you, when you think back on those early UFCs, you know, what, what are your memories? It was that for you, was that the best time of your professional fighting career? Did you enjoy pride more? What do you think back on when you think of those early UFC days? No, I, I thought that uh, it was the next step in the uh, really the evolution of, of no whole sport fighting. Um, you know, you've seen the, uh, the uh, uh, pancreas organization, they took it to another level. Uh, then the USC came in and took it to another level. Um, and so it was just this transition of seeing these, these fights and stuff that were happening in the ring, reaching um, the levels of, of, of almost like superhero type fighters um, actually playing out superhero roles in the ring. And uh, what people used to seeing in comic book characters, now they're actually seeing in the ring, actually in front of them, they're alive. And so for me, that's what it was like. It was like um, uh, this superhero things that we all kind of grew up with, Superman and Batman and Robin Hood and all these different types of, of these superheroes. Now, actually, they're, they're living and alive now right here in the ring. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's certainly what it felt like watching those early UFCs. It was like superheroes, superheroes coming to life, for sure. Do you... For you, do you have, like, a favorite organization that you enjoyed fighting for? Was your time in Pancreas, is that more valued to you over your time in the UFC versus your time in Pride? Did, or just did it not matter for you? Did you just, you know, a fight was a fight and it didn't so much matter the promotion? Well, I think it was timing for me. I mean, it was almost like um, everything worked out perfectly. You know, first I got into the, the uh, organization with Fujiwar and it was a hard style. And then, you know, we went into the pancreas, which was a complete shoot. And then, of course, the UFC came around. It was no whole barred, bare knuckle, anything goes. And it was almost like every time I made a transition, uh, I reached the elite level in all of them, uh, even in no holes barred. And then all of a sudden, it almost like it ran its course. Like I couldn't go any farther. I went as high as I could possibly go. And then there was another challenge for me, you know, like going into pro wrestling. Um, yeah. That was a and challenge so it was almost like the timing for me in all these different transitions in my life that I was going through I was always reaching to do something bigger and better and so all these different things had happened to me uh, were just timing stuff like okay I've done this I've reached the top what's next and then this thing would pop up and I would I would go to the from, from uh, pancreas into the UFC and then from UFC into pro wrestling and then from wrestling back into the pride organization, pride organization back into the UFC. And it was almost like I was being guided uh, through this, this type of force to be, in, be involved with these companies 
as they were trying to grow and become popular. And I was that guy, that face that helped these organizations do that. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because, you know, you came into the WWE in 1997, which was a very huge, as you know, transition year for them. They were losing the ratings battle to WCW, and then you were right there in the middle of that Attitude Era. And really, I mean, how much credibility, you gave so much credibility to the WWE being the UFC, you know, super fight champion and being the world's most dangerous man as profiled on ABC. And you were right in the middle of WWE's biggest boom period of all time. What was that like for you just being there at that time? I mean, that was a that was a critical time in WWE history. Well, I think that if if you look at which I got a book coming out, uh, Jonathan Snowden's writing it. And I believe that you'll be able to see a lot of the different things that happened in the career. You know, where I went into Pancrase, and basically I was the face of Pancrase. I even bridged the gap between Pancrase over in Japan here in the United States. I was the champion. I, I was the face of that organization. And then going into the and then, you know, uh, immediately I became, like Art Davies said, I became the face of UFC very quickly. Uh, and I was on the poster. And the organization was behind me. I was going to battle with, with you know, McCain and all these people trying to shut it down. I was the face. And all of a sudden, it ran its peak. And then all of a sudden, I went into pro wrestling. Pro wrestling at that time, they lost all their top superstars, WCW. And Vince had to go in a different direction. And they brought me in to help solidify Stone Cold and Bret Hart as, as no holds barred. And me being in that match with those two guys basically stamped them. The holes barred, badass attitude, don't give a crap type wrestle. So once we did that, you started seeing pro wrestling start to take off because people started to say, that's cool. That's a cool thing to watch. So I really, uh, if you look at my career, things that I did, I was very, very important in a lot of different roles that these different organizations reached the level of success. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree a thousand percent with you. I, as a long, long time wrestling nerd, uh, I say all the time that the Bret Hart versus Steve Austin match at WrestleMania 13 is the greatest WWE match of all time. And I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head. You just being in that ring for that match, it's still a great match with a normal referee, but your presence there, I think, added an air of credibility to it and you know it was one of the more violent endings to a match seeing stone cold steve austin quote-unquote pass out the blood pouring down his face very much a perfect storm to make that match what it was and really as that kind of kicked off sure he won the king of the ring the year before in the austin 316 but it was that wrestlemania match that you know really started the main event push as they say uh of stone cold steve austin you were a huge part of that uh, when, why did you leave the WWF? I've heard you in some other interviews it had time just kind of run its course. The money in Japan was calling and you thought it was better, but you know, what, what happened there when you left WWF? Well, I think a lot of it had to do with the, the direction I was going. Uh, it seemed like they were starting to beat time. I don't know if it was because of the incident with Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and the group job because I was Bret Hart. Bret guys you know he helped me out at the beginning 
Um, I don't know what all the, the things were going on, but it just felt to me like I on my course there. Like I wasn't, uh, I didn't feel like I was, um, they weren't pushing me in the direction I needed to go. And so that's when I needed to make, make a change. I had to make sure that I protect the character of the world's most dangerous man. And because I brought that in the guys who come in and they get their characters and they're under check with these characters. I came in as me. And so I had to protect me. And because when they started to want me to get beat up by different things and do all these different stuff, I had to look at it and go, wait a minute, I still have enough to live and use what I've built along the years uh, to my advantage. And I can't allow them to try to hurt that, that character. And so I had to make some changes. And, and, uh, and I think that uh, I did it without any anger or frustration, at least I think, um, that would cause who hate me or be angry at me. I, I did it very professionally. I thought in my, in, in the way that I did things, I offered them something and they offered something back. thought it was amicable. I we some spot, um, by the way, things are going with the hall of fame and all the other stuff that's going on, not bringing back in some situations where there are other guys coming back. I would have to probably disagree with those statements. It was some, some anger and frustration that, about. Hmm. That's very yeah. That's very interesting. They they as a company can get very weird sometimes with who they bring back and who they don't and and who's in and who's out. Sometimes you know. While I have you here, I do have to ask you. Ronda Rousey recently made the transition into WWE. How, how do you think she's doing from one former shoot fighter and WWE fighter to to another? How, how would you rate her performance so far? Yeah, I think excellent. I think that. Oh, anybody that thinks that it's that easy to try it because I think that that's one of the most difficult uh, transitions to make because there's so much to pro wrestling. Uh, there's a lot to it. And so what she's doing right now is not an easy thing. And so my hat's off to her. She's doing a great job. Uh, she's working hard at it. As long as she keeps her nose to the grindstone and, and, and listens and, and, and keeps working hard, I think she's going to be a superstar. Yeah, absolutely. And I also wanted to get your opinion. I don't know if you were watching it live. I'm guessing you saw it last week. Brock Lesnar came into the cage after DC's big win, beating Stipe Miocic for the heavyweight title. You know, Brock shoves him, cuts the promo. What was your take on that? Was that him kind of, you know, is that pro wrestling or or was that a shoot? <laughs> Couldn't tell you. Um I don't know. I, I, yeah, like I said, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it just to me, it, it, it if you're gonna do something like that, then do it. Uh, don't do it halfway. And right. It was, it was almost okay. Where you know where's DC? What's he doing? Why is he like letting that guy push him? Um, it, to me, it just didn't have had to like. You no, know, a guy pushes you, man. You're a fight. You don't. Just, I, I don't know. It just, it just, like it was almost like, hey, uh, you know, I'm here now, and and you know, what are you going to do about it? And then nobody does anything about it, so it just fell flat. Yeah, I, I think you hit, you hit the nail on the head with that. I agree. I remember reading an article around UFC 200 where DC was, you know, texting Brock, "Is it true you're going to be on this card?" Because uh, he knew that if Brock was on the UFC 200 card and DC was also on it until his fight got canceled, that he would have a bigger payday. 
So that to me says, okay, these guys are buddies. You know, they're at least texting each other. And then you have Brock come in, shove them, and DC just kind of laughs. I agree with you. I think it came off a little flat. But um, I wanted you to be the one to say it, not me, because you have more credibility in this world. Uh, so I agree completely. Um, so you have a book coming out with Jonathan Snowden. That's awesome. He's a great writer. And you're also doing a podcast now. Talk to us a little bit about that and, and where can fans find it? Yeah, it's a podcast and it's on iTunes. It's a podcast uh, and you can go to iTunes and up. It's uh, We've got, I think, 12 or 11 or 12 of them now. And see what it is, is a mixture of basically the common things going on in the world today. We talk about, you know, gun control. We talk about shootings. We talk about you know, all kinds of politics. We also talk about sports, you know, UFC, uh, things that are happening today, you know, things that have happened, future is the UFC, about contracts, how it's, those things work. Uh, and then we also have a thing that we call the lion's cage, where we basically have come in and pitch their ideas, kind of like Shark Tank. Uh, and we look at them, call them, and, and uh, my business partner, Des Woodruff, is a entrepreneur. He's a this guy, he does stocks. So he's really good at that. So I come at it from a standpoint of being a regular guy who goes out and looks at things and sees what I like about something. They send a the product, I'll use it, whether it's uh, sports equipment, whether it's you know, a machine or a, a computer, whatever it is that you create, I usually put it through the test and you, I come at it from a, a regular guy, person that would go and buy something off the shelf and what I look at, what I see. And he comes at it more from the business standpoint, what, what needs to, you know, be better in it, whether there's a, a, a good profit margin, you know, what's the expense rate, all things that you at from the backside of it. So they get a good idea where they stand as far as their product goes. And then if there's something there, you can help them pitch it. We can help of it, and we lock hands with them, and we help them, uh, you know, move forward. And we've got four or five businesses that will fall with the Lions Cage. It's like I said, it's different from all the other podcasts. We we tackle a lot of different issues, we talk about a lot of different things, and we also give people opportunities in the business world. That is that's very cool. That that's awesome. So that's the Dangerous Podcast. You get it on iTunes. He is Hall of Famer Ken Shamrock. You can follow him on Twitter at Shamrock Ken. And Ken, I just, I can't thank you enough for the time. You've always been one of my favorites. I've been watching you since UFC one. So this was a thrill for me and we hope to catch up with you down the road sometime. Well, I appreciate it too. And guys, uh, all the fans out there won't follow me and see all the things I've got coming up or you want to get my social media sites. KenShamrock.com has got all of my connections. Go there, check it out. Whatever you have, I have. Just go on there, check it out. I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. KenShamrock.com, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, Ken. Have a great night. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, brother. And that interview was, of course, brought to you by Garage Fit. Hey, it's hard to get from BJJ to the gym and keep the missus or the hubby happy. The good news is now you can get to BJJ and get that workout in and save time and money doing so. And it's all made possible by GarageFit. GarageFit brings you the quality equipment that you're used to in your gym and brings it right into your garage. Whether you need heavy ropes, kettlebells, or weighted vests, they've got whatever you need for a high quality workout in the comfort of your own home. Go to garagegym.net right now and check out what GarageFit can do for you. 
We, of course, are Dave and Dan with FlowCombat.com's Top Turtle MMA, and that was Dave's interview with Ken Shamrock. Dave, what was your favorite part of that interview? I mean, my favorite part of interviewing Ken Shamrock is, it's Ken frickin' Shamrock, the guy's a legend, should be in the WWE Hall of Fame, he is in the UFC Hall of Fame, anyone that's associated with UFC 1, which I am very much looking forward to the movie that Art Davey told us they're making about that event. I just am such a happy camper, and I one day hope to get to interview Gerard Gardot for those same reasons. What, what about Art Jimerson? You want to talk one boxing glove? Nah, I don't like how he tapped out. <laughs> it was to nothing. I, but you know what? Hey, respect Art Jimerson and the one glove. But nah, I like my man Gerard Gardot because I just like to envision him chain-smoking cigarettes in the back between <laughs> fights. I love that, guys. I love the story that Art Davey told about uh, Tulatelli wants signing the contract while everybody was bickering about rules. I'd love to have yeah. Tula Telly on here. Oh, hell yeah, hell yeah. Actually, is he, uh, odd question, is he still alive? Yeah, he's an, he's an actor now. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall? I have. He plays, like, what does he play, a cabana boy or something? Yeah, he, he plays, like, the, the big, lovable bartender on the Hawaiian Island, and he slits the throat of a pig with uh, Jason Siegel. <laughs> that is so perfect. So you could honestly say he had the best acting career out of anyone from US, early UFCs. Oh, definitely. Probably from right. late UFC, too. <laughs> I like it. Um, so in honor of having Ken Shamrock on the show, we thought it would be apropos, as they say, uh, thinking of those old school UFC fights, you know, Hoist Gracie trying to set up his triangles, the wrestlers with their ground and pound, then guys like Tito and obviously Ken. Ground and pound was such a staple of those early UFC fights. And we thought to ourselves, who has the best ground and pound in the UFC today? Gumby, are you ready for the top five current modern-day UFC ground-and-pound fighters? Are you ready? Hell yeah, let's go. All right, we'll start now then with number five on the top five current UFC ground-and-pound fighters, meaning the fighters with the best ground-and-pound aspect of their game, or the strongest as one of the strongest aspects of their game being ground-and-pound. And we'll start with maybe a, a guy that might seem odd. It's Derek the Black Beast Lewis. Yeah, so for anybody who just watched his last fight with Francis Nagano, you're probably thinking to yourself, what the fuck are they thinking? Uh, but if you go back and look at his fights, when he does get top control against guys, especially late in fights, he's able to put them away with some pretty good, like, riding on them, little bit of leg riding, really decent mount, and some really punishing grounded pound. I mean, look at his fight with uh, Shamil Abdurkahimov. Took him to the fourth round. He looked real sketchy in rounds one through three. Then he takes him down and beats his skull in as soon as he gets him down because his grounded pound is just so punishing. And it's put him in the top five in the heavyweight division. you got to respect that. Absolutely. Uh, then also, I think his best display of ground and pound arguably was the Damian Grabowski fight. Rides that guy like a surfboard and then just uh, pounds him into oblivion for the win. We'll move on, though, to number four. This one may be a little more obvious. He's the new kid on the block, but goddamn is this guy good at ground and pound. It's a friend of the show. It's Alex Volkanovsky. Yeah, and Alex Volkanovsky sold me on his, his ground and pound in his uh, fight in February against Jeremy Kennedy. Jeremy Kennedy, undefeated at the time, 
walks into that cage with nobody being able to take him down. He even said in an interview that he planned on taking Volkanovski down, and he ate punch after punch after punch after elbow after elbow after elbow, all on the ground to a TKO loss to Alexander Volkanovski. Volkanovski just showed in there that he could not only ground and pound anybody, but he could especially ground and pound people who think they can out-wrestle him. Yeah, I have a feeling if we ever update this list, Volkanovski will be moving up the list soon. I think just the fact that he's so new, we were hesitant to put him any higher, but he has a whole body of work that we've yet to even see. And this and guy, so, I mean... He's so close to the ground, too. The dude's in, in the fed, featherweight division, but he's only like 5'8 or something like that. And I think he said they were cheating at listing him at 5'8". So you're, what you're saying is if he starts tagging people on the feet, we could still consider it ground and pound because it's low to the ground. <laughs> That's right. All right, we'll move then to number three. Guy in the prime of his career, fought for a title once. We're talking about Kevin Lee. Yeah, I, I love Kevin Lee as this pick here because uh, I think while he's got three rear naked choke finishes on his record of pretty high caliber opponents, a lot of those rear naked chokes are set up by ground and pounding until the guys are woozy. And then, of course, you get the fight against Edson Barboza, which is just absolutely insane as far as ground and pound goes. He did what maybe only one other person has done to Edson Barboza in about the same kind of fashion. I'll also give an honorable mention, until he got tired out, which you could say is from the staff, he was doing a pretty good number on Tony Ferguson from a ground and pound position. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and his wrestling background, uh, I think Kevin Lee is a preeminent ground and pound specialist. In today's game, we'll move then to number two. And you want to talk about ground and pound. You want to talk about violent ground and pound. Look no further than the heavyweight Curtis Blades. Yeah, and Curtis Blades, another guy who benefits from a recent performance in this division because, you know, it, he has always had good ground and pound. He's always looked good after taking a fighter down and throwing some bows or throwing some punches, but he's never looked as good as he did at, against uh, Alistair Overeem. I just think what he did to Overeem is something you've maybe only seen done to Overeem once maybe before, and it wasn't as dominant as when Blades did it. Because Stipe did something very similar, and a special shout-out to Stipe for that. But Stipe's was not as violent as Curtis Blades, and it wasn't as technical as Curtis Blades either. All right, we'll move then to number one, and I don't think it's any shock. I'm a personal fanboy myself, but numero uno in our minds and in our hearts when it comes to ground and pound, it's Habib Nurmagomedov. Yeah, and you've got to give it a Habib. I mean, like, if you look at maybe his last five or six fights, that's when it really started to shine, right? The Pat Healy fight, it started to shine. He did it against Dos Anjos, against Daryl Horcher, which is kind of one we don't talk about too much. He crushed Michael Johnson in just a violent way. That's when the grounded pound started getting, like, national recognition. And then the Barboza and Iaquinta fights uh, are just some of the, the most impressive technical display of giving an opponent enough room to think he can move a little bit and then when he moves punishing him for it yeah absolutely i love the way he utilizes the old wrist ride isolating one arm and then doing mm -hmm. his ground and pound from there to be and he talks shit while he gets ground and pound he talks shit during it <laughs> I, hey, that's what I'm saying. Habib is the master of ground and pound. So we will review 
Uh, Derek Luce, number five. Alex Volkanowski, number four. Derek Lee, number three. Curtis Blades, number two. And Habib, numero uno at the top five ground and pound fighters in the UFC today. Gumby, did we have any honorable mentions that maybe just missed the cut? Yeah, you've got to give an honorable mention to, I'm going to put them all in one basket here, Cain Velazquez, John Jones, and GSP. We pretty much left those three off the list just because none of them have been active recently. We're looking at like recent performances more than anything, and the three of them just haven't fought all that recent. I'm also going to give a, a shout-out. We already gave one to Stipe Miocic, who I thought was really close. Mirsad Bechtik, who is probably one or two performances away from being on this list. And uh, for the female side of things, Tatiana Suarez has got some mean ground and pound and some excellent wrestling, too. So uh, honorable mentions to all of those, but just off the list. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like GSP basically in quasi-retirement. The last time I think his trainer, Faraz Zahabi, was on the Joe Rogan experience, he said that, or actually it was John Danaher, excuse me, he said because he has that – I guess it's like a gastric problem, if I'm not mistaken. They don't even mm-hmm. know if he could ever cut weight again. So who's to say GSP ever fights again? And then John yep. Jones, we all know about the, the roids, and with Kane, just perennially injured. So it's tough to consider them in a top five current blank anything. Yeah, and when was the last time, think about this real hard, when was the last time you saw any of them use ground and pound? What do you think the most recent example of one of those three using ground and pound was? Yeah, I mean, was it Kane at UFC 200 against Travis Brown or not even? That, I mean, that fight that lasted. might be the that might be the most recent because I think Jones fought after that, right? But he didn't use any ground and pound. Right, he fought DC um, mm. whenever it was the next yeah. year, and then that was largely contested on the feet. He got him with a kick, and with GSP, he knocked out or he rocked Bisping up top, and then and went then in took for, his back. Yeah, took his back. You know, hashtag jujitsu rules. But, yeah, no ground and pound. Yep, crazy stuff. That It's been that long since we've seen one of those three with ground and pound. Well, now I'm sad, but those three are still legends. We hope you enjoyed our combat countdown. Hit us up on Twitter, at TopTurtleMMA, if you agree or disagree strongly with any of our picks. Let's move now to the UFC Hamburg preview. Gumby, hit us up with the UFC Hamburg preview. <laughs> 